Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. Those are the verses 1 through 6 of Psalm 2, which along with Psalms 1 and 3 are the psalms appointed for today, Monday, April the 25th, 2022. You're listening to Faith Seeking Understanding, and I'm your host, John Green. Thanks for being along today. I appreciate it very much. We are um, beginning a, a look at the book of Daniel today, uh, starting with the first chapter, the first 21 verses of that chapter. We're also over in John's Gospel with John 17, verses 1 to 11, and then in the first epistle of John, chapter 1, verses 1 to 10. <clears throat> so in Daniel... It, we, we're going to get the exile from Babylon begins here. <clears throat> In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God. And he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. Then the king commanded Ashpenaz, his chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and of the nobility, youths without blemish, of good appearance and skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning, and competent to stand in the king's palace, and to teach them the literature and the language of the Chaldeans. So what we see is is that, that Nebuchadnezzar's decision here is to take some of the leaders of the people of Judah, particularly their younger ones, and, and take them into Babylon and give them over to the Chaldeans, those the diviners and seers. They would have been astrologers and astronomers at the same time, uh, typically. Those two branches of um, of learning were not separated until like the 16th or 17th century. Um, a lot of the early um, astronomers were also astrologers, and they would use the stars to predict the future through the use of things like horoscopes. And so the Chaldeans were those who studied the stars and, and studied the, the um, dark arts, let's say. Uh, they would have been magicians and diviners and all that kind of stuff. And so that the king decided that if you could make them like them, then they could see that the the exiles were treated well, and they were raised up, and they, and they were intended to see the superiority of Babylonian culture and learning to their own. So that was the purpose of bringing them in, because you bring in some of the leaders, and then if you get them to accept things, then they'll lead the others into acceptance of it as well. The king assigned them a daily portion of the food that the king ate and of the wine that he drank. In other words, he's, he, he provided for them from his own table. He, he's treating them incredibly well. They were to be educated for three years, and at the end of that time, they were to stand before the king. Among them were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah of the tribe of Judah. And the chief of the eunuchs gave them names, gave them Babylonian names. Daniel he called Belteshazzar, Hananiah he called Shadrach, Mishael he called Meshach, and Azariah he called Abednego. And so Daniel, remember, is the writer of this. And so he's choosing out these three who, like him, stood apart 
They stood apart from this attempt to turn them into good little Babylonian citizens. They, they kept their own religion, and they kept their own learning. <clears throat> Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank, and therefore he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself. And God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. And the chief of the eunuchs said to Daniel, I fear the Lord my king, who has signed your food and drink. For why should he see that you're in worse condition than the youths who have your own age? So you would endanger my head with the king. In other words, if I, if I give in to your request, then ultimately I could be accused of of doing something that causes you to fail to thrive, and his whole program of converting you to good little Babylonians is going to be overthrown. He wants to show how good and gracious he is to you. And and it's not going to go over well if you're not flourishing. So Daniel said to the steward, whom the chief of the eunuchs had assigned over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, test your servants for ten days. Let us be given vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then let our appearance and the appearance of the youths who eat the king's food be observed by you and deal with your servants according to what you see. So let's just run an experiment here. For 10 days, you give us the stuff that we ask for, and, and you give those other people over there the stuff the king wants to provide, and then you measure us against them. So he listened to them in this matter and tested them for 10 days. At the end of 10 days, it was seen that they were better in appearance and fatter in flesh than all the youths who ate the king's food. So the steward took away their food and wine they were to drink and gave them vegetables. So, so they passed the test. They, they were actually doing better. And it, it has to do only with obedience to God and, and his blessing on their lives. As for these four youths, God gave them learning and skill in all literature and wisdom, and Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. So the four of them had certain things in common, and that is learning and skill in literature and wisdom, but Daniel had some other gifts. That was understanding in visions and dreams, and that's going to come in quite handy in Daniel's life. At the end of the time, when the king had commanded that they should be brought in, the chief of the eunuchs brought them in before Nebuchadnezzar. And the king spoke with them, and among all of them, none was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Therefore, they stood before the king. So what, what we're being told here is there was a larger group of, of Israelite young uh, men who had been brought up there. And now here, at the end of three years, they're all brought before the king. And what we see is those who had remained faithful to God— in all their ways, including these personal habits of diet, um, were the, the far and above the rest. And it's because, again, they stood with their God, and they wouldn't be corrupted in this way. They, they stood apart and separate from. And in every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king inquired of them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters that were in his kingdom. And Daniel was there until the first year of King Cyrus. So what we're told is, is that, that they were superior not only to the other Israelites' youth, youths that had been brought there in exile, they were superior, in fact, to their own mentors and teachers. And what Daniel says is they were ten times better. <laughs> I love that. It's it, Dan, Daniel might not be a little proud, huh? So he, he tells us that he remained there until the first year of King Cyrus. <clears throat> In the gospel today, Jesus is finishing up his high priestly prayer here. 
he's finishing up the the evening uh, when he was let out to be crucified that that day the the night of the trial on the Passover celebration and the feast. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted his eyes up to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you. This is, this is not me asking for my own glorification because my glorification will become your glorification as well. Since you've given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. So Jesus says is that, that he is giving eternal life, but what is eternal life? The, and he says eternal life is knowing you and me. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. He says, I've already done the work of glorifying you here on earth. Now I'm asking that you glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. So he's claiming to be preexistent, to be prior to creation and the acts of creation. So it's not like Jesus didn't say these things about himself. So anybody who would reduce him to, oh, he was a great teacher, but he never claimed to be, that's just not true. You can look back now and say, well, oh, okay, the only option you've got is for, to say, John made all this up. It was none of the above. He was, he was not that. He was just a great teacher who was misunderstood. No, that great teachers who are misunderstood aren't crucified for the things Jesus was crucified for. So put that thought out of your mind. He is the preexistent Christ. He is the preexistent Messiah, the one whom God designated from before the world was born, created, <coughs> to be the Savior of mankind. Period. End of sentence. You, you, you can't define him in some other way and say that you believe. Those two things are inextricable. What you believe and your testimony of who he is matters. You can't just believe that he was a great teacher and have eternal life. That's not the way it works. He says, I've manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world, to the specific people. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you. So they understand our relationship. They understand that I'm not acting on my own here. They understand that everything that you have given me is, is directly from you. For I've given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them. And they have come to know in truth that I came from you. And they have believed that you sent me. Huge belief. So we, we've seen this movement of belief in John's gospel. What we've seen is them moving from stating, I believe that we found Messiah, to a, a deeper belief that he was indeed sent by God in a unique way. Not like David was sent, not like these others were sent, but that, but that, that Jesus was sent in a very unique way to be the Messiah. He said, I'm praying for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they're yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. There, that, there, there's no distinction between what the Father has and what the Son has. That, that, that's one. And he's pointing toward his unity with the Father in this, while at the same time talking about separate glorifications. And the glorification that's going to take place in the presence of the Father is what we see in Revelation 5. 
And so what we get is it's, it's all the same glory. They share it equally among one another, and they, their roles are to glorify one another. It's the, the, the way that they exist is to say that, that that internal dance of the Trinity includes the joyous participation and the glorification of the other, something that we are not too great at here on earth. When somebody else is up, sometimes we feel like that somehow diminishes us, let's say, and we don't, even if it's a friend, there's a part of us that doesn't take play, part in that person's joy. We share some of it, typically, but not all of it, because there's this jealousy thing that gets in the way, and such is not true in the, in the life of the Trinity. So to ask that I be glorified in the presence of God, in Jesus' case, is, is not to diminish the glory of the Father in any shape, form, or fashion. It's to glorify the Father in a unique and different way. And then we are intended to be further glorification of Jesus. We are to, to be adornments in that glorification by our lives and the fruit that we bear. He says, I'm no longer in the world, but they're in the world, and I'm coming to you, Holy Father. Keep them in your name, which you've given me, that they may be one even as we are one. The, the prayer that he makes here for, for the unity of the body of Christ is, is far beyond anything that we typically experience. There's no division in the Trinity. And so when if we were one as they were one, then we would fulfill Paul's admonition to weep with those who weep, mourn with those who mourn, and celebrate with those who celebrate. It would be uh, perfect um, in that sense. There would be nothing held back in any shape, form, or fashion uh, between um, brothers and sisters in Christ as far as this um, passionate desire to see the other lifted up and to, to, to see that relationship that exists among the Trinity extended to uh, brothers and sisters in Christ it is an extraordinary prayer. And we should be joining him in that prayer on a daily basis. In the epistle today, John is speaking to an unknown group, people we don't know who he's speaking to, but we do know from after we get further into it, the purpose for which he wrote it, and that's to to say that Jesus was real, because there's a Gnostic heresy that says that Jesus just seemed to be a man. So those are called the docetists. And, and the docetists believe something like this, that Jesus put on a suit, and, and he seemed to be a human being, but he wasn't really. He wasn't really at all. In fact, one of the things that they'll say is is that, that when uh, Joseph, uh, not Joseph Arimathea, um, when, when, he, when the cross is born, um, that Simon of Cyrene, the, the spirit of Simon of Cyrene jumps into the Jesus body, and the Jesus spirit jumps into the Simon of Cyrene body, and, this, and so it's actually Simon of Cyrene who is crucified, and Jesus stands and watches and laughs, it, and John is writing a corrective to that. He says, that which was from the beginning, which we've heard, which we've seen with our eyes, which we looked on and touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest, and we have seen it and testify to it and proclaim to you the eternal life, which... We proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father. 
and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, we also proclaim to you, so that you may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. And we're writing these things so that our joy may be complete. In other words, we find our joy in sharing the gospel with you and allowing you to know the full truth. Some have come in who have, who have chosen to stir things up and to deny the physical reality of Jesus, and we want you to know these things so that our joy may be complete. And how is their joy then made complete? It's when they believe that as opposed to the lies that are being told. This is the message we have heard from him and proclaimed to you, that God is light, and in him there's no darkness at all. And and one of the things that the Gnostics would teach is that they have a different light, and there's a light that's not available to the others. But but John's saying God is light. There's no darkness in him. So if you have a revelation from God, if you have the Holy Spirit, there's nothing hidden or obscured from you. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness— we lie and do not practice the truth, which which has to—this walking in darkness is, again, one of the things the Docetists and the Gnostics would, would have believed is, is that the soul is distinct from the body in such a way that, that the body can do anything. The sins of the body are, are not even important because they don't touch the soul. So when he says we're walking in darkness, that's, that's, they're denying the power and the intent of the law— and walking in those ways which the law would say is wrong. And so they've denied the law. They've denied the effect of the law um, in spite of the fact that Jesus is the Word of God, and he shows us exactly what it looks like to keep the law, and he gives us the Holy Spirit so that we can know how to how to keep the law in whatever circumstance we might find ourselves in. We're not going to be fooled into to going in a different direction. But he said, these people have taught you that you can do what you want. But he says that God is the light of the world. <clears throat> he said, if we walk in the light as he's in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And so one of the things that, that we need to always be on guard against is anybody who would, who would try and tell us that they are without sin. Because there's, that's pride, <laughs> and it's deceit. It's not true. He says, but if we want to deal with sin, then we have to confess our sins first. In order that, God can do exactly what he promised he would do, is to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from unrighteousness. And if we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. We make him a liar because he says we are. And we make a mockery of the cross, saying we don't need that. Other people do but I don't. It's important that, that we see ourselves correctly and that we understand ourselves correctly in order that we might receive all that's on offer to us. And in this passage and in the Daniel passage, what we see is, is the, the, the desire that Daniel and his companions had was to walk in the light, to walk in light of God's law, not Nebuchadnezzar's law. And so they chose to walk in the light rather than to walk in the darkness that Nebuchadnezzar had offered them. They saw it for what it was. There was the greatest power on earth at the time, and yet they saw it as inferior and passing away. And we need to be the same with respect to our own culture and to the places where we find ourselves. We need not, we don't have to be 
always social critics, but what we have to recognize is is that all these things are temporal, and they're not fully of God, and therefore that they themselves are sinful in many ways, and we need to be able to identify those things where culture departs from the law of God, and we need to be firm and strong and resolute in standing against those things and calling the culture to repent.